So we're going to pick up in First Peter today. Um, our section in our, our workbooks was chapter 2, verses 13 through 25, um, but I'm going to start us at verse 12 as it um, helps link us into our, our themes for this morning. But before I read the text, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day that you have made. Lord, we thank you for the gift of time together and time in your word. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would fill this place this morning. Holy Spirit, that you would be our teacher. Lord, as we look into your word, that you would give us insights, that you would give us clarity. Lord, that you would convict our hearts where we need convicting. Lord, that you would comfort us where we need comforting and that you would illumine things and make them clear to our minds. And so we offer you this time, in Jesus' name, amen. So 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 12. Hear God's word. Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. On the day he visits us, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether the king as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering, because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. So as we read this passage this morning, it causes us to bristle as many of the ideals we hold dear in American culture are kind of said no to. We love the ideas of autonomy, individual rights, assertiveness. Yet in this passage, we are called to deny ourselves and to submit to the authorities for the Lord's sake as Christ himself modeled for us. But as we seek to understand what today's passage means for us, today in our context, it's helpful to first understand what it means for the Christians that Peter was first writing to, um, as that has significant bearing on the advice that he offers. And we've explored their situation some before in other lessons, 
but I think it, for our context today, it bears repeating or going a little deeper. So twice in his letter so far, Peter has referred to his audience as aliens and strangers in this world. And this is really helpful in understanding their situation. For Peter's first audience, these descriptions were true both spiritually and socially. As a people who were citizens of an invisible kingdom, this was indeed true. The world would really never fully understand them or what they believed or welcome them. They worshipped a Lord who had ascended into heaven and sent his Holy Spirit to empower them. So none of us as Christ followers will ever feel completely at home in this present age. And so that's how it's spiritually true of us. But this idea of being aliens and strangers was also true for these uh, first Christians socially. The Christians Peter writes to are not empowered citizens in their native lands. Rather, they are a people who have been displaced and marginalized. But they've entered into a whole new identity through the family of God. Another accurate way to refer to their social status could be resident aliens or temporary residents. In the vastness of the Roman Empire, um, a commentator helps us to understand that these aliens were restricted to whom they could marry, the holding of land and succession of property. They were restricted in their voting rights and participation in certain associations. They were also subject to higher taxes and severe forms of punishment. They were set apart from their host society by their lack of roots, their ethnic origin, their language, their culture, their political and religious loyalties. And such strangers were commonly viewed as threats to the established order and the native well-being. Constant exposure to local fear and suspicion, ignorant slander, discrimination, and manipulation was the regular lot of these social outsiders to whom Peter writes. And so as you try to picture this population or understand their plight, think more of the refugee families that we help to welcome through world relief and less of the public policy graduate from Duke. (laughs) So new or temporary residents who come to our land as refugees are outsiders to how our political systems function, and they're not going to be in a comfortable position to advocate for themselves. Yet like the Christians to whom Peter writes, If these refugees are Christians, they know that in Christ, everything has been made new. And somehow, in this formidable situation, they must learn how to live such good lives among the pagans that though they are accused of doing wrong and misunderstood, their good deeds may be seen. And through this, God can be glorified. And so the whole letter of 1 Peter very much deals with the theme of how Christians should relate to the state or government. And Christians have used this idea to to formulate their views throughout the centuries. But these Christians um, in our letter find themselves in a very different public environment than we do as 21st century Christians who live in the midst of a democracy. But still, Peter's instructions to them are helpful to us as we seek to live lives that bear witness to the gospel. And so foundational to any obligations that we might live under or any kind of governmental system is the theological reality that has been achieved for us. This is the most important reality. We are a free people. We have been set free from the power of sin. We're no longer captive to guilt or to shame. 
And Satan and his demons are no longer the authority over us. We've been brought out of darkness into the marvelous light, and we belong to a living God who bought us at a price. This is true of Peter's first audience, and it is true for us who trust Christ in our day. And the believers to whom Peter wrote may be homeless in their society and feeling powerless, but they are beautifully at home in the household of God. And so you can imagine somebody who feels very unempowered when they're suddenly set free in Christ and given this good news of liberation, this new identity they have in the family of God is radically empowering, especially for those who have felt completely powerless in their social situation. This freedom that Jesus purchased gives everyone an equitable social status. Paul tells us that there is neither Greek or Jew, slave or free, man and woman, that all are one in Christ. And this news is so wonderfully liberating. But what does it mean for the normal constraints of the society we live in? Are we now empowered to do as we please? And this is the pastoral question that Peter addresses. These first hearers were likely very excited about their new self-understanding. But how should they live that out in a culture that was growing increasingly hostile to um, followers of Jesus? And so Peter summons them to continue their current occupations, but with a deepened understanding and with grander goals. They are called to submit to the order that is around them, the king, the governors, even the emperor, and to do this for the Lord's sake. And they're doing so while squelch any foolish talk around them and win a good name for Christians. And this gracious submission might even point those in authority over them to the true Lord, Jesus Christ himself. In all of this, Peter underscores the value of holy living and the influence it can have on observers and how a consistent God-fearing lifestyle can help maintain good relations with the society we live in. So that's the goal of submission to win the authority of the, the outsiders around us, or not to win their authority, but to win the approval. And so what kind of uh, submission was Peter urging his hearers towards? And is that is the same kind of submission that our Lord still expects of us? So submission most literally means to live under the order. The ESV uses the phrase, be subject to. And submission is an antidote to chaos. And this is another way to live out Jesus' injunction to be peacemakers. And Peter specifies that they are to live in submission to the supreme authority, which in their case would be the emperor, and to the local authority. And it's most likely that Peter wrote this letter at the very beginning of Nero's reign, and he ended up becoming a very intense persecutor of Christians. And there was nothing commendable about Nero as a person or as a worthy ruler, And it's not because of his character that they're asked to submit. And so Peter's suggestion seems really alarming to us, as we want our leaders to be worthy of our respect. And so there is much for us to learn about perspective, even in extreme situations. And so what might seem like a call to passivity to us actually allows that Christian community to have an active role. If these early believers just throw off all social constraints their fledgling movement will be instantly squashed by the authorities. But if they live quiet and respectable lives, their witness can win over many, and in the long run, that will have a more lasting influence. 
And such is the upside down way of God's kingdom, authority through submission. They know that they are free and that ultimately they answer only to God alone. And such knowledge empowers them to live lives that might seem small in the eyes of the world, but are great in the eyes of God. Peter's request to live in submission was definitely not an endorsement of Roman authority, but rather puts all authority in its rightful place under the rule and the kingship of Jesus. All earthly governments will one day submit openly to Jesus' leadership. And one commentator sums up the Christian response this way. The Christians are free with respect to the authorities, and normally this freedom results in loyalty, submission, and honor. And Martin Luther, the famous church reformer, synthesized Peter's ethic with this thought. A Christian is the perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is the perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. And so there's this paradox. In the case of these first hearers, they they probably had no other choice than to submit to the governing authorities. And even for a tyrant as an emperor, these believers could submit in a way that honored God and entrusted themselves to Jesus' ultimate judgment. They were not required to do anything that broke the law of God, but if they could submit in a way that highlighted their faith, this was the best strategy for their situation. This kept the gospel in good repute and staved off any persecution that might be imminent. And so before we look to the application of Peter for our day, Let's also look again at the conduct he commends for slaves. Again, Peter commends the willing submission in the pattern of Jesus. And it's hard for us as we come to this passage because we have the horrors of the New World African slave trade that defiled our country for two centuries in our mind, and then the wake of racial injustice that has followed. And then we also live in a world where there are more slaves today than any other time in history through the horrors of contemporary human trafficking. And this passage has been used to justify such atrocities. And these are really important issues for followers of Jesus to address. But to do so meaningfully, it's helpful for again for us to understand the issues that Peter was addressing in his day so we can address ours in a faithful way. In the ancient world, slavery was a diverse institution. Each culture had its own expression, and the Roman and Greek worlds had anchored their entire economic system in this institution of slavery. And historians have even estimated that some one-third of urban populations was a slave population. In the Roman world, the context for our first Peter passage, slavery was usually not a permanent condition in life. Rather, it was a temporary condition on the path to freedom. Many of these ancient people chose to be slaves of a Roman citizen so that upon their release, they could become Roman citizens in their own right. And this could be one of the possible reasons for Peter's urging to submit. It could lead to their greater freedom and betterment in the future. And in this ancient Roman world, slaves were also granted status associated with their master. If they had a powerful master, that gave them a measure of power as well. And at times it was even desirable for them to be a slave. For others, they chose slavery over the vagabond existence of finding odd jobs. And in that ancient era, slaves were not just used for tiresome manual labor. Some slaves were doctors, teachers, writers, accountants, agents, bailiffs, overseers, secretaries, and sea captains. 
And slavery had become this foundation for their economy and a very normal ordering of society at their time, even though it's very foreign to us. And so Peter's asking these Christians to exhibit behavior that transcends the expectations of the day and of their culture in a way that reveals its supernatural origins. And again, this witness to the grace of God um, brings a beautiful repute to the gospel. It is expected that we suffer when we do evil, but Christians show a different grace entirely um, when we suffer for doing good. And Peter even says it's a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. And then from here, Peter launches into the example of Jesus and the way of the cross. And at this juncture, we should stop and marvel how the Holy Spirit and the reality of the resurrection has utterly transformed Peter's thinking. He was Satan's pawn when he tried to talk Jesus out of the cross. Peter couldn't imagine his leader and his friend enduring such a horrible scandal. And when the authorities came to arrest Jesus the evening before his crucifixion, submission was not on Peter's mind. Instead, Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. Jesus then commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And then probably something like an hour later, after the swift act of taking justice into his own hands, Peter even abandoned Jesus instead of being identified with a crucified Messiah. And here we find his thinking completely transformed. He urges all believers everywhere to identify with the life of the cross and the subversive victory it accomplished. Jesus was perfect, yet he suffered. Jesus was slandered, but he did not defend himself. He was wounded, and we are healed. He didn't seek to justify himself, but rather he entrusted himself to the God who judges justly. So Peter now, in his ministry, has a deep theology of the cross and how God redeems even unjust suffering. And this has totally changed how Peter interacts with the world. Peter's still bold, he's still passionate about his beliefs, but he no longer has the pressing need to make things right in his own understanding or timing. And this is how the cross should confront us. Do we see Jesus as the figurehead for our way of justice? Or does his crucified way of settling matters make us a little uneasy? One of the challenges to believers of our time and place is not the lack of influence or advocacy, but rather to allow room for the mystery of God. We are taught from a young age that we can make a difference in the world and that we should take a stand to confront evil. And both of these things are true, and we should not be indifferent in the face of injustice. But often, when we seek to make a positive difference in the world, and then we suffer when we take a stand— or our intended outcome is not achieved, we wonder if God has abandoned us. And so these believers to whom Peter first wrote can instruct us. They help us to know that our current government, whether it makes us happy or makes us sad, is not the ultimate reality, and that it's commendable to lay aside our personal rights for the good of the gospel. And so I want to say very clearly that this passage does not condone slavery especially the forms that it has taken in recent centuries. Other passages in scripture that express God's care for the oppressed 
are clear on how God desires for the poor and the stranger to be treated. And this passage also does not ask us to blindly follow the government into ungodly thoughts and actions. The example of Daniel and his friends who boldly said no to idol worship and yes to praying to one true God clearly refutes this idea. This weekend, as we welcomed the Saw family that um, our missionaries in India into our midst, I was really touched by their um, the ways that they've seen these realities live out in a way that's very different from our culture. They're as Christians, they are not the minor or they're not the majority people group in their land. Um, in fact, they can easily come under persecution from the Hindus and the Muslims or the government. And so as they seek to spread the gospel, they have to be really careful that they do so in a way that isn't going to uh, attract even more persecution. And so one of the things that they, they said that they did that kind of um, uh, submits to the local government is they closed their offices on the government holidays. You know, holidays that they probably don't really care much about as Christians, but they do so to not um, attract undue persecution, which other Christians have experienced. And also there, there's a caste system. Many of you have heard about how, you know, you have many castes and that those um, in the upper caste can really use the lower caste as slaves. And the lower caste has really no hope of ever getting out of their situation. But the higher caste and the lower caste are coming to the Lord Jesus. And this radically transforms things. But they're still living in this culture where this caste system isn't just going to disappear. And so he was sharing examples of how the Dalit caste, um, the servants, when they come to know the Lord, their behavior changes. They're no longer lazy and they no longer steal from their masters. And this begins to win the approval of those who are in authority over them. And they begin to ask questions. What's changed your behavior? And so I, I think hearing about that context helped me think more about these first Christians to which Peter writes. But then we do have our, our issues here in America. How do we apply this text when we live in a democracy where we have a great deal of advocacy? And I think this passage causes us to grapple with issues that are even deeper than does God condone slavery or the proper relation between church and state, even though these are really important issues to ponder deeply about. <coughs> But I think this passage also reveals some more insidious issues of our heart that we need to search out. And some of these issues that that came to my mind were the need to constantly defend ourselves, or maybe a death grip on our individual rights, our unwillingness to trust and trust judgment to Jesus, our need to be the authority, or even our fear of suffering. And so in all the situations we find ourselves in, um, when we're asked either to submit or to confront, we need to ask God for deep wisdom. When are we called, and probably always, to serve others with whom we disagree? Or when do we stand before the Red Sea and ask that God would part the waters that we might be delivered? Or when, given the rights and the personal advocacy that are afforded to us as citizens of this country, when do we work for change? And then when do we live quietly and good lives, and pray for the foundations of injustice to be broken. I think one of the things about our culture, and especially that of younger generations, um, is that we greatly value collaborative leadership. We want our ideas to be heard, valued, and followed. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but we can also face a greater disappointment and an unwillingness to serve when our perspective isn't heeded. In many cultures, if your boss was unfair and awful, 
you had very little recourse. If you weren't a believer, you could maybe try for revenge or sabotage or just be lazy and do a poor job. Or maybe fall prey to despair and fatalism. But thankfully, Peter sets the stage for a hope-filled gospel response. Submit, but with honor, hope, and dignity. In our day, if our master or boss is awful or unfair, we have those ancient options as well. Or we can simply resign and find new employment. But what's not winsome for any believer's witness is to undermine the authority that is over them or to tirelessly complain. We can seek new circumstances, but in an honorable way, or we could submit and serve those um, that are over us in a way that shines forth our identity in Jesus. And while our political situation is also different than Peter's first audience, I think we still have much insight to gain. It's in our cultural DNA to first think about how we can protest a given situation rather than how we could submit and serve. Think about all of the just governmental obligations that we have. And we think and ponder, how can we get around that governmental regulation instead of how, in fulfilling them, we can honor Jesus and bear witness to the cruciform way of life. One example that has always struck with me um, is when I served as an intern in seminary. The youth pastor I worked with had the very strong conviction that speeding was not living in submission to governmental authorities. And in New Jersey, this was certainly a conviction that was countercultural. <laughs> And I, I admit that I was annoyed when it seemed as if we were just creeping along under an unnecessary restriction on speed. But yet his witness to willingly and joyfully uh, submit to all speed limits for the sake of the gospel was a powerful witness to me and the teens he led. Anybody who drives with me probably knows I, I haven't had the strong conviction as well, but it's, it's one to ponder. So. In light of our text this morning, I'd like to encourage us that before we jump up to protest, we ask the Lord to examine our hearts. Is the situation that we're in one where humble submission would highlight the gospel? Do we need to let the Lord's justice unfold in his perfect timing? And there are certainly many situations where it's good to use the advocacy that's afforded to us in our situation to work for the better good. And yes, God does call us to confront systems of oppression. God called Moses to boldly confront the Pharaoh so that the Hebrew slaves could be set free. But they'd been slaves for nearly 400 years when this had happened. God called William Wilberforce to use the position he had to advocate for the abolition of the slave trade in Great Britain. And in our day, working towards the alleviation of human trafficking is certainly a goal we should set our sights on and labor fervently toward. But yet there's millions of Christians around the world who aren't going to have any advocacy in their culture. And so we should respect them and learn from them as they live out generous and gracious lives in submission every day, and that they too showcase um, in a beautiful way the gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we come before you asking that you would rework our hearts like you did for Peter. Jesus, we desperately need your perspective on submission and justice. Reveal to us where our cultural way of life has blinded us to the call of gospel life. And Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us the wisdom to trust you, whether in a season of submission or in confrontation. Fix our hearts on you, Jesus, that we would forever trust you to be the righteous judge, the one who rewards rightly, and the one who heals all our wounds. You, Jesus, are our all in all, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.